Well, good morning again. Um, this Sunday we are continuing our series um, that looks at the hallmarks of a healthy church. And today we are going to be trying to, to cover the theme of fellowship. It's a particularly apt subject when we think that today we've been able to fellowship by singing. We've been able to, or will be able to, fellowship as a whole family when the children come in later. And we'll also be able to fellowship um, as we come round the communion table shortly after this. Um, in our young adult sessions on uh, a Sunday night, we've been spending our time looking at the book of Philippians. And there is, to, to my mind, a very apt passage of scripture there that I think would be useful to frame our perspective on the topic of fellowship this morning. For those of you who attend the young adult session, and I've seen a few of you here today, I apologize in advance to you if you've heard some of this before. But given the challenge laid out to us by Paul in his letter to the Philippians, and certainly the chapter that we're going to consider, it will certainly do you no harm to consider it more than once. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to the book of Philippians to to chapter 1 and we're going to begin at the conclusion of the chapter at verse 27 and we're going to read through to verse 18 of chapter 2. I'll read from the ESV translation. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Chapter 2, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort and love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that on the day 
of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to to read it and to consider it. Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us this morning as a church, that you would speak to us as brothers and sisters, as a a family um, who come round um, to just meditate on your word just, just now. Lord, we pray that you would challenge our way of thinking, that you would encourage us, and that you would reveal more of yourself to us this morning, we pray, in your precious Son's name. Amen. Just for a bit of um, context, if you were to go back to the opening um, of this letter to the church in Philippi, and you were to, to read it down to the point where we've read it just now, you would most likely split it into to three sections. You would have the, the introductory section um, of where Paul uh, gives his, his, his greeting and his thanksgiving and a prayer. And then in the section preceding the, the part that we've just read, um, you would read off Paul's circumstances. And it describes him going through this phase, um, living out gospel joy through enduring and choosing hardship. Then in this section of text, the bit that we've just read from from verse 27 of chapter 1 through to uh, verse 18 of chapter 2, you have some very practical instructions concerning Christian living and fellowship. Up to this point, Paul has, has told us of his own circumstances, but now he has important things to say that are to bear out on the lives of the Philippian Christians. They are called to suffer, and they should count it as a privilege, and so endure so with courage. In their trials and in every aspect of their their common life, they must stand in fellowship, united. Pride hinders unity and fellowship, and the only remedy for selfishness and faction is to look long and often at Christ himself until his way of thinking and his way of acting become ours. He is the example and our saviour, but his salvation must be worked out in the lives of obedience, lives that will shine, the text says, as lights in the world, and that will be the apostles' joy on the day of Christ. So if we're to to break down our um, passage of Scripture... We could do it in four points. You have the call to live a life worthy of the gospel. We see that in verses 27 to 30. You have an appeal for for unity through personal humility in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2. You have the example of Christ in verses 5 to 11. And then you have the practical outworking of salvation summarized for us in verses 12 through 18. Four subpoints supporting this overarching theme of how we should live out lives in fellowship as followers of Jesus. And I was always told that the best sermons have three points, and I'm not great at sermonizing, and therefore I've 
elected to, to choose for him. We're just going to spend four or five minutes on each. But as we go through this, I want us to see the way in which Paul breaks down this text into logical, almost chronological sections in support of his overall aim. The call, the appeal, the example, then the application. We will start with the call. Paul may come back to Philippi or he may not. What matters, he stresses, is that they, the Philippians, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. At all times, including today, the greatest problem in advancing the gospel has been the inconsistency of Christians. The gospel has its greatest influence when the, when the lives of Christians commend it and live up to its truths. And that gives us a special responsibility. The Greek word used in that phrase, only let your manner of life be, is the same word in which our modern word politics comes from. And so it's in that context that Paul is trying to, to highlight to the Philippians and to us that they are called to embrace Christ-centered citizenship. We know that in Philippi that Roman citizenship was, was highly prized. And therefore there's this, this distinction made here by Paul that being a citizen of heaven is better than being a citizen of Rome. It's a call to come to the party of Christ. And that's a worthy challenge for us here today. Our citizenship, what we are known for, what our identity is, should be marked by Christ. It shouldn't be our, our nationality or our hometown or our workplace or our family or the sports team that we associate with, or even certain friends that make us stand out. It should be our following of Christ. There's Derek. He's a Christian. And we shouldn't be afraid of that. We see in verse 28, don't be frightened of your opponents. Paul is calling for us to stand not in our own strength, but in God's. And therefore, when people come up against us practicing what we are actually called to do, they are challenging God rather than us. And challenging God leads to destruction, a theme that's repeated in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. But what's really important here is that we comprehend the depth of calling that Paul is conveying to those in Philippi and us as readers. It isn't a half hearted plea to get on the bus. Rather, it's a, a full-bodied, all-encompassing call to arms. In that call, we have a reminder of God's grace to us. It says, for it has been granted to you. That's the reference to the, the giving of the grace. And then we have in verse 29, ending with a call to suffer for his sake. Verse 30, telling us that we'll be engaged in conflict. What Paul is saying is that we've been bought with a price. God's grace has been extended to us, an undeserving people. And our call in light of that grace is to take up our cross and to suffer for his sake. It isn't going to be plain sailing. It is going to cause suffering. But if we're not suffering for the gospel... Are we really embracing God's call? Are we really identifying as citizens of heaven? 
Are we enduring hardship for gospel joy? Are we choosing hardship for gospel joy? Tim Keller sums up this perspective quite well when he says this, Whilst other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. Our call is to see that perspective, the coming joy, the eternal joy, the ultimate definition of joy, joy at God's right hand. And so when we, when we think about fellowship in that context, in that context of that calling to live as Christ-centered citizens, Paul is asking us first and foremost to plant ourselves in Christ. In order to, to behave properly as a, as a fellow uh, citizen in the body of Christ, it's important and paramount that we grasp that truth first. And in acknowledgement of that truth, in the knowledge of our salvation, we are told that we are going to need to give up some of our comforts. We're going to need to apply the, the same grace that was first extended to us mercifully by God in our dealings with others. We are commended to work with one mind and with one spirit in verse 27, striving together for the sake of the gospel. In an article in the, the magazine Christianity Today, the, the New Testament scholar John McRae explained that fellowship in the New Testament basically means sharing and self-sacrifice with other believers. He explained that fellowship in the early church was not based on uniformity of thought or practice, except on the occasion for limits of immorality or rejection of the confession of Christ were involved. Now in Hebron's context, I'm not saying that we should seek only to agree on these things. We should, of course, seek to agree on a whole host of things. But what is important is that we, as a group of brothers and sisters, as a church family, don't get bogged down in the politics of this place or in self-interest. We need to learn to share together and to sacrifice for one another. The focus of our conversations and on our being shouldn't be on a particular worship song preference or the time that the service runs to or what is served for student lunch. Our focus needs to be on what we are doing to serve our brothers and sisters. Are we listening to the call to look out for others' interests? Are we listening to the call to strive together as a body of believers? The appeal. Secondly, we have the appeal contained within the first four verses of chapter 2. The appeal is a very strong plea for Christian unity, the kind of appeal we seem not prone to, to take very seriously at times. But when you look at these four verses, you can see a very interesting structure. In verse 1, we have, we have four reasons for there to be unity. In verse 2, we see four ways to describe that unity. And then in verses 3, we have two negative examples and two positives to embrace. And then in verse 4, a further negative and a further positive. Verse 1, the four reasons 
appeals for there to be unity so that we can have encouragement in Christ or comfort in Christ together. That's reason number one. Reason number two is that we would draw comfort in unity from loving one another. Reason number three, that we would strive for unity so that we could participate or fellowship in the Spirit. And then reason number four, so that we could experience each other's affections and sympathies. Four great reasons to seek out fellowship and unity. And then when you look at verse 2 of chapter 2, we see four describers of what this unity looks like. It looks like joy. It looks like love. It looks like agreeableness. And it looks like oneness in thought. It's interesting that Paul mentions the word mind twice here. Paul often speaks of the mind. Think of Romans chapter 12 where Paul speaks about the renewing of our minds. Paul understands that our minds and our thoughts are the basis of our speech and our actions. We have a tendency, don't we, as people to form our relationships based on opinions and emotion and experience. But Paul highlights for us here that we ought to train the way that we think, that we ought to seek God's help in renewing our minds such that we would use our minds with our God-given perspectives to control our words and to control our actions, such that we would seek harmony in the body, that we should think how we should behave rather than behave in certain ways depending on our emotions. This is deep, practical Christian living. And it talks right into our situation now and it'll talk right into our situation forevermore. We've had our call and now we have our appeal to start putting this into action. And if we're struggling to see the practicality of what Paul is saying to us here, then read verses 3 and 4 for Paul's no-nonsense, crystal-clear language. Self-ambition and conceit are both enemies of unity and harmony. They are disruptive. To live in unity, Paul appeals for us to be humble, to place others before ourselves, to look not to our own self-interest, but rather to the interest of others. Paul is saying that no one takes to a person who makes a habit of speaking only about themselves. No one takes to a person who is only interested in what they have achieved. Rather, look to be supporters, encouragers, inquirers of other people. But when we listen to this, don't think for one moment that this example applies to anyone more than it does to yourself. It applies to all of us equally and truly. Paul is appealing to all of us to remind ourselves to behave in this way. The common thread right through this passage is that we would deny ourselves for gospel living. To actively engage with brothers and sisters, with the people round about us just now, we need to seek to reduce that which is ours in the service of others. God, through Paul, isn't, isn't making an appeal just to the church in Philippi. He's making an appeal to Hebron on Summer Street in Aberdeen. And that appeal is to enjoy comfort 
to enjoy love, to enjoy fellowship and the empathy and sympathy of the family of this church. But to do that, we need to strive together for humility and to actively train our minds through the reading of his word, through the petitioning of his throne, and through leaning on his spirit. And if we do those things, if we live in that way as a body of believers, if we behave in that manner, then we will live in fellowship and harmony. We will be a united front for his kingdom, a church that seeks out him and his people and the lost over the self-preservation of our needs. We've had the call, we've had the appeal. Now then we see the example of how we should live. Linguistically, this is perhaps the most interesting piece of our passage today. It's certainly helpful if you're to read this passage with with a study uh, version or, or indeed with a commentary because I guarantee that the scholars contributing to those um, publications will draw your attention to verses 6 to 11, a section that they describe as the Christ hymn. This is a passage of text that's rhythmic in form and can be arranged into six stanzas of three lines each. And the language is such that it suggests that Paul may not even have written it but simply used it as an appropriate quote to insert at this juncture. It may, of course, be Paul's own work, but there is certainly consensus that it's been taken from somewhere else and inserted here. But regardless of the origins, there are very powerful words used here, and we could spend all day trying to peel off the layers and wrap our heads around what this section really means and what its implications are for our lives. And I'm probably not going to do it justice But as we seek to see Christ's example here, I think we can see very direct ways in which his example would be contrary to our normal way of doing and our normal way of behaving. Verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus was truly God before he became a human person. Then, without ceasing to be God, he was willing to lay aside the glory of being equal with God. That was not something to be grasped. It could be that this is a a direct contrast to Adam or indeed to us, people who, who fall to temptation as they try to seize something that will make them like God. For Adam, it was the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge. For us, it can be power or careers, material things, or influence. All false gods that take our very hearts away from the real example, which is to lay aside our glory for his glory. Verses 7 and 8, it says, He humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself, not of his deity, but of his glory. He took on human form, not just likeness, no. He became human in nature. But he was obedient, fully obedient, even to the point of death. Death in its cruelest form, death on the cross. When Paul holds up the murder here, and when he makes the call, when he appeals to unity, He's saying this is the example. 
The example is to strive for humility. The example is to to strive for obedience. The the example is to, to suffer for the gospel. The example is to take all of our material glory and to sacrifice it for his glory. Verses 9 to 11 go on to tell us that Jesus is to be exalted to the highest place of honor. This is a pointer to to Jesus' honor and his rule and his authority over all creation. And it's to be used as an example to remind ourselves to be humble, to seek Jesus first and to desire to put aside personal ambition for the sake of identity in Christ. We've had the call. We've had the appeal. We have seen Christ's example for good Christian living and fellowship. Now then, how do we apply it? Verses 12 to 18 detail the practical outworking of our salvation. In our example, we saw that Christ demonstrates humility, but also obedience, and it's that obedience to which we are called. In verse 12, when Paul speaks about working out our salvation, he is trying to to convey a sense of bringing it to completion. It's not a matter of working for salvation. We can never do that. The very word salvation means rescue, signifies that we cannot save ourselves, but we can and we must live lives that show God's saving power in us. And to do that, God has instilled in in each believer his spirit. We see that in verse 13, for it is God who works in you, it says. The Greek word used here is the the same root of our modern word, energy. It's in God's spirit in which we are to rely on for our energy, for our fuel in our fight to live lives that demonstrate Jesus. And in applying that, we are called to a very high standard. Look at verse 15. Each application is worth pondering. We are to be blameless, which means to be above criticism. We are to be innocent or pure, which means to be, to be wholesome in character. We are described as children of God, as it's not only our privilege, but also our responsibility to, to live in this world and to show God's family likeness. We're to be without fault, the same standards required of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, and to shine like lights indicating that Christ is the light and we are his reflection to others. And we are to do all this by using God's spirit and by clinging to his word, holding fast, it says in verse 16, continually putting our faith to test and into practice. What does that look like in Hebrew? What does that look like for us? As has been the the whole theme of the text it looks like a group of believers a church family who put others before themselves it looks like a church family who seek to serve one another it looks like a church family made up of members who volunteer for creche and for Sunday school for Bible class such that younger generations see a whole family of brothers and sisters committed to telling them about the love of Jesus. 
It looks like a church family who want to welcome people to, to set up chairs, to, to fix our sound, to do, to do multimedia so that when we gather to worship as a group of believers, we come and give of our best. It looks like a church family who make meals for one another and seek to host families and students and the elderly so that those people would know real Christian fellowship. It looks like a church family who pray for one another, who financially support each other, who care for each other and their issues more than their own, for it's right that we should love our neighbours. It looks like a church family who are humble with each other, who seek out agreeableness who are willing to put aside personal preferences and choice for the greater good of the family. For it is right that it is only he that deserves all glory. And it looks like a church family where all are involved, from youth to student, young adult to midlife or retiree to those more elderly. We all know the example of Christ. We all hear the same call. We all listen to the same appeal. Church, the call is to all participate in one way or another. There are gaps in Hebron. There are opportunities to volunteer. There are always ways to serve our church family. Paul's letter has has built up this challenge for us today. The call, the appeal, the example of Jesus, and then this application, all geared toward practical teaching for living out lives in fellowship as Christians. That is what the word is for. That's what the wisdom contained in this passage is for. That we would cling fast to this word. That we would listen to its wisdom. Why? Because as the text says, because otherwise our time spent between now and Christ's return would be in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we listen to this word, Father, and we just pray that we would take... um, the challenge from this this letter that Paul had penned to the Philippians, Lord, that we would be aware of the call and the appeal. We've seen your example. And Lord, we pray that we would work hard to apply it, Lord, that we would work hard to to humble ourselves and to seek the interests of others, that we would look to, to serve our brothers and sisters, both practically and spiritually, Lord, praying for them, assisting in all the ways that we can. Father, in actively seeking to serve this body of believers. Father, we pray that you would stir our hearts to, to grasp the opportunity to, to serve because it's what a good church looks like. Father, we pray that you would just encourage us to, to take hold of that, Lord, so that we can experience all the love, all the joy, all the comfort, all the affections and all the sympathies of our brothers and sisters. Father, we pray that we would take that upon ourselves as we head out this week. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus, the example, 
the one who came and humbled himself to the point of death so that we may know you as our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.